This is my country. The man was drunk, his eyes full of rage, clenched fist slammed down on the bar table. My country. This was in Belfast on the 12th of July, 1993. The man was a member of the Shankill Road Orange Lodge. Tape recorder in hand, I had marched the full length of the traditional 12th parade route in formation with the group, making the ritual stops for alcoholic refreshments. Now, the march finished, we were upstairs in a function room at a huge pub, having more drinks. The general lightheartedness about someone named Michael from America in the group, they were convinced I was an Irishman named Mick from New York, or Patty Town, as they kept calling it, had turned sullen. There was a sense on this 12th the game was changing. The cost of maintaining the status quo in the North, including close to 20,000 troops, was becoming prohibitive. There was a fear the British government would do a deal with Irish Republicans so they could get the army out of Ulster. There were no more loyal subjects of the Queen, and Her Majesty's government was preparing to sell them out. This was their country. The IRA had its country on the other side of the border, and they should go there if they don't like it. One ginger-haired man had given in to his rage at the whole outside world, of which I was the sole representative within punching distance. The low table around which we were seated was covered with bottles and glasses. Which one could I get a hold of to bang against this guy's head when he made his move? But there was no point in plotting strategy. There were 200 or so others in the room who were at least sympathetic to his anger. I would take some severe punishment before anyone stepped in to help. A tap on my shoulder and I was steered to another table. Wiser heads made apologies. Another round appeared. But soon a man in his seventies was heading into the same dark place, his eyes black with rage and reminiscence. His son George had been murdered by the IRA. He still looked for the killers and would avenge his son's death. He had told the police when the deed was done they would not have to come to his house to arrest him. He would go to the station and tell them so himself, so he would. George had died for his country, the man said. This country is a nation that does not exist. That was in 1993. Much has changed in the North, but not that fact. What is a nation? This isn't a seminar question or the title of a think tank paper. It's a question that has framed my career as a journalist and author. It's a question I'm still looking to answer. What is a nation? What is a nation state? Is it the same as a country? Are a people or a tribe the same thing as a nation? What does national sovereignty really mean? It's the key question for our globalized 21st century. What is a nation? If you grew up in America in the middle of the 20th century as I did, these are not questions that crossed your mind too often. Fixed, eternal, imminent, that was America. One nation, under God, as we pledged to the flag every morning. By the transitive property of ignorance, it was possible to reach adulthood thinking of all nations as fixed and eternal as well. The Cold War acted as a kind of aspic, preserving the world's borders more or less as they were on the maps in the classrooms where I recited the Pledge of Allegiance, and then later at university, and then on into my early adult life in the theater and as an arts journalist. The map of the world stayed pretty much the same. Then the Soviet Union collapsed, and overnight the nations of the earth I had learned about growing up disappeared. Fifteen countries emerged out of the USSR alone. The Soviet Union's European satellites redefined their nationhood overnight. 
In the space of three years, the German Democratic Republic was effectively purchased by the German Federal Republic. Czechoslovakia became two nations, created out of negotiation. Yugoslavia became seven countries, brought forth upon this earth in bloodshed. By chance, I began reporting hard news around this time. Much of my work over the last 20 years has been spent reporting on conflicts and conflict resolution in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Iraq, and Israel-Palestine. All of those struggles grew out of unresolved questions of nationhood. Jihadism in the Middle East and here in Britain has as its core objective the creation of a single Muslim nation stretching from the Atlantic coast of Morocco to the islands of Malaysia. Even now, my wings clipped and my journeys into war zones at an end, the question of nationhood dogs my reporting. I've been to Scotland recently to report on Scottish independence. The Eurozone crisis is not just about old European nations' indebtedness. It's about the birth pains of a new model of national sovereignty in a globalized world. So you can see why answering the question, what is a nation, has come to dominate my thinking. I can tell you precisely the time and place when the question first took shape in my brain. November 1995, in Biloxi, Mississippi, on America's Gulf Coast. The question's formulation is related to that anecdote I told you at the beginning of this talk. I was in the home of a courtly southern bachelor, a physician, whose people had been leading citizens of Biloxi from before the time of the Civil War. He was the head of the local camp of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, a group which, depending on your point of view, is either a heritage organization or first cousin of the Ku Klux Klan. I was doing some reporting on the American South for the World Service on this most psychologically southern state of the old Confederacy. The doctor was giving me a tutorial on post-Civil War history in Mississippi. The American Civil War had ended in 1865, but Mississippi wasn't fully reintegrated into American life until World War II, according to the doctor, when the Gulf Coast became a center for flight training and its mangrove swamps the place where troops preparing for the Pacific theater of the war could learn how to fight and survive in island jungles. Young men came from all over the country to train, and this, more than anything, had been the catalyst to bring Mississippians back into the mainstream of American life. Within the gentleman's long and dispassionate summary, one theme kept being repeated, the dual nature of his idea of nation or country. He used the terms interchangeably, as I think most people do. He seemed to owe allegiance to two nations, the South and the United States. As I sat listening, there was something very familiar about the doctor's words. Since my 12th of July 1993 introduction to Northern Ireland's loyalist passions, I had spent most of the previous two and a half years covering the nascent political process that would lead ultimately to the Good Friday Agreement. Amongst Unionists, one heard the same expression of dual national allegiance. Ulster was their nation or country. So was Britain. Yet the former was not a subset of the latter, I always had the sense that in the eyes of the Unionist community, the British connection was necessary for the survival of the Ulster identity. That was its usefulness. In reality, their nation was a place called Ulster. Ian Paisley had shouted it more than once directly into my face. The good people of Ulster will not... Will not whatever the grievance was. He never shouted, The good people of Britain will not... Ulster seemed to be his national identity, even though there was no nation called Ulster. 
the conversations in Northern Ireland and Mississippi echoed one another. Do you know how many Ulstermen died at the Somme? I was regularly asked by Northern Protestants. In the South, the question went, Did you know that per capita more men from Mississippi have won the Medal of Honor than from any other state? This blood sacrifice was the greatest proof of loyalty, and yet we are occupied in our own country, an Ulsterman would say, and more than once proof would walk past the window in the form of a British army patrol in combat fatigues, rifles at the ready, soldiers occasionally stopping, swiveling to reconnoiter the rooftops and alleyways of Belfast. We were an occupied country for 80 years after the Civil War, said the Mississippi doctor, and other white folks around the state. Might not be factually accurate, but it was part of their belief system. Some recalled federal troops forcing racial integration in Mississippi schools. Who is the federal government to send the army into my country and do this? The first question an American reporter was asked by virtually any unionist or loyalist was, do you know how many American presidents trace their ancestry to Ulster? The question would be answered for you. Eleven. I wonder if they give the answer as twelve now, as apparently one of Barack Obama's maternal ancestors came from Fermanagh. The president question was just one way to remind American reporters of the close connection between Ulster's Protestants and their blood relations in America, the Scotch-Irish. What was the origin of these similarities and connections? Almost exactly 300 years ago, the first great wave of migration from Ireland to what was not yet the United States got underway. The bulk of those migrating were Ulster Protestants. For many of the Ulstermen who set out for the New World, it was just another step in a westward migration from Scotland that had begun a mere two generations earlier. These folk from the western Scottish border country had been planted in Ulster and given land at very favorable leaseholding terms. The leases were up, rents were rising, time to move on. On arrival in Britain's New World colonies, they continued west in search of cheap land, moving inland to the lee of the Appalachian Mountains. Hard country. Indian country. Eventually the Ulstermen, or Irish, as they were called, found the gaps in the forever ridges that seemed to block the American continent from north to south. They moved into what would become Tennessee and Kentucky and headed further south and west into Alabama and Mississippi. Half listening to my doctor guide speak, I found myself thinking about my march along the Shankle Road. I was struck that day by how many different denominations of church were represented. I mean, how many forms of Protestantism can there be? The only other places I'd ever seen with that many different churches in such a compact space were in the American South. The more time I spent in the north of Ireland, the more I could see its connections with the American South. All these disparate impressions came together, sitting in the doctor's lovely house on the Gulf Coast with portraits of the ancestors in Confederate uniforms on the wall, and I asked myself for the first time, what is a nation? Are the Ulster Scots, the Scotch-Irish, a nation without a country of their own? Two and a half centuries of separate historical development, and yet the similarities demonstrated there was a kind of cultural DNA that had survived time and distance. In the past, some implicitly accepted a racial and social hierarchy that kept them well below the top tier, yet gave them a position of dominance over those beneath them, Catholics in the North, blacks in the South. They shared a heroic stubbornness to accept the facts of history. No surrender, the South will rise again, aren't just slogans to be tattooed across knuckles and biceps. It's a pugnacious principle of political action. 
take a drive around the American South today and talk to the most dogmatic members of the Republican Party. Ask them their ancestry in Europe, and you will be amazed at how many say Scotch-Irish. Finally, there is religion. Not just the fractious, subdivided nature of the Protestantism the North and the South share, but its use to achieve political ends. But is culture, shared by people across oceans and centuries, the essence of what a nation is, especially in the modern world? About six months after my march with the Shankle Road Orange Lodge, I was back in Belfast and met Jerry Adams for the first time. Welcome to Ireland, he said, his standard greeting to foreign journalists. There was the inescapable geographical fact stated clearly. The partition border notwithstanding, Ireland had been a single national entity for too long. Ulster had always been part of it. Over the next five years, inescapable political facts came into play. The British government took a pragmatic approach to dealing with Sinn Féin and paramilitaries on all sides. Although unionist politicians fought an intense rearguard action to preserve the status quo, no surrender, pragmatism eventually ruled. A deal was done. It's subtle. It maintains the partition border, but put in place conditions that allow that line on the map to evolve into meaninglessness. After midnight on Good Friday, 1998, Ian Paisley stormed into the freezing press tent at Stormont and began a familiar rant about the good people of Ulster not standing for this stitch-up. But, of course, they did. And Paisley eventually became First Minister, forming a fine working partnership with the former IRA leader, Martin McGuinness. Are Ian Paisley's good people of Ulster and their American cousins a nation? Not quite. They're a primary color in larger national tapestries. I'm not quite sure what a nation is, but I'm certain it needs to be more than that.